Welcome, oh happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. You prefer that? You know, I mean, I've, I've had a couple of whiny complaints over the last couple of weeks that uh, I say really too differently. And somebody even said it wastes time and they want to just get on with the meat of the show. But I'm asking you, how does this really sound to you? I'm your rabbi who reveals how the world really works. I mean, does that have any aplomb to it? Does that have any zoomph to it? I think not. So until further notice, I shall remain your rabbi, solemnly dedicated to revealing how the world really works. That's right. That is it. And it is exclusively for the benefit of the happy warriors. That's right, because if you think about it, we're all happy warriors, right? Whether we're man or woman, uh, young or older, and in any event, the age doesn't really matter because we're mostly spiritual beings, right? When you think about it, right, we really, as has been said many times, it's not that we are bodies possessing a soul. If anything, we are souls possessing a body. You know why I say that? Well, for several reasons, but one of them that's interesting is because everybody, regardless of where you come from and regardless of your background, um, each and every one of us is awkward about going to the bathroom. For one thing, is there anybody who does not prefer shutting the door when, when you go to the bathroom? Um, we all um, are a little self self-conscious about it. And so we come up with all kinds of euphemisms. Uh, I'm, I'm going to the men's room. I'm going to the ladies' room. I'm going to powder my nose. Um, I'm, I'm going to wash my hands. Um, I'm, I'm going to the, uh, to the washroom. But nobody actually says, I'm going to do exactly what they're going to do. Why? It's perfectly natural. It's perfectly normal. I'll tell you why. Because deep down, every single one of us recognizes that we are not just a body. If we were, we would be indistinguishable from animals. And animals have absolutely no reticence whatsoever about simply relieving themselves wherever they are. In fact, we go to considerable trouble to train our cats and dogs to not just relieve themselves wherever they are. But in so doing, they're behaving unnaturally, just as we are. And, uh, and we exhibit some of this awkwardness by over-decorating our bathrooms. Monogram towels, expensive wallpaper. I mean, I don't have wallpaper like that in my study. But uh, yeah, right, bathroom, because deep down, we are uncomfortable with an activity that we share 100% and entirely with animals. Almost everything else we do has a spiritual dimension to it. But when it comes to relieving ourselves, that one, <laughs> that's just, just what animals do. And we're awkward about that. You know why? 
because we are souls and we feel an awkwardness about an activity that is really pretty much basically animalistic. Looking at that activity alone, there is no evidence that we have souls. The evidence comes from our awkwardness, locking the door, not wanting to make too much noise. Uh, people go to, to go to great trouble to, I mean, make sure it doesn't smell bad. All these things in order to somehow camouflage exactly what's going on there. That is, I think, an almost unarguable indicator that, yes, not only are we mostly souls, but we know it. Deep down, we know it. And so, uh, regardless of whether we're men or women or what we do, fact is that to live productively and successfully, you have to fight every day. You have to fight against the force of entropy, if nothing else. You fight to maintain the things you own and you possess. You fight to build and maintain your family, right? Believe me, as, as anybody who's done it knows, raising a family is a fight every single... Oh, it's not without its wonderful moments, of course. Most of the time it's wonderful. Even the fighting is uplifting and fulfilling. But it's a struggle. You know, once you've, once you've brought a child into this world, you can't just sort of sit back and relax and let the world roll on like the mighty Mississippi. No, that's not how it works. And so you, you are in a fight. Uh, you have to fight to maintain your finances. You fight to maintain your body and your fitness and your business or your profession or your career. Whatever it is you do, it doesn't come easily. God created a world in which chaos and disorder rules. I refer you to the second verse of Genesis. And the world was tohu bohu. And that is a word that is actually used in um, English writing of several hundred years ago, where they recognized how central that word in the second verse of Genesis is, speaking about the fact that the world is a world of entropy. It's a world in which things tend towards chaos and disorder. And whether you want to have a garden or whether you want to uh, maintain uh, your, your vehicle or your, uh, the siding on your house or whatever you want to maintain, even your own body requires a fight. And that's a good thing. To stop fighting, to stop seeking, to abolish ambition to stop striving well really that's that's to die and uh, and i use the phrase not just warriors but happy warriors because to throw yourself into the fight for eight or ten or twelve hours a day six days a week well that's one thing but to do all that with a debonair smile on your face and to do it with a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up in your soul, well, that means that you are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming. You're devoted to your faith, your family, your finances, your fitness, and your friendships, knowing that you can triumph 
over all those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism, along with all the many destructive and evil social pathologies that it generates. And so I remind you of that beautiful poem by William Ernest Henley. It's called Invictus. And the closing lines, you you cannot forget, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that, you know, it's, it's, you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. The, um, the term happy warrior, I think I've, I've told you, but for those of you, and we have new listeners every single week, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, I love getting emails from people who ask me basic questions indicating that they've just started listening. Um, happy warrior, where do I get that phrase from? I borrowed it. Borrow is the academic term for plagiarize. Uh, I borrowed it from William Wordsworth, the English poet, and um, and here are just a few lines that he uses to describe the happy warrior. Who is the happy warrior? Who is he that every man in arms should wish to be? It is the generous spirit who, when brought, finds comfort in himself and in his cause, and while the mortal mist is gathering, draws his breath in confidence of heaven's applause. This is the happy warrior, this is he, that every man in arms should wish to be. That's right. And so we are the happy warriors, because we are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. My friends, my dear happy warriors, it is indeed my honor to serve you all. And, uh, you know, the, 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 there are things that, that make me happy, as uh, everybody has. Um, and even when they're not around, I recognize the obligation to be happy. I recognize that I have to f- pull happiness out of my soul and make it a part of me all the time. But uh, when I uh, am with my family in the cabin of a small boat lying to our anchor one evening in a quiet cove off the coast of British Columbia on the west of Canada, well, it's very easy there for me to feel great contentment and a uh, irresistible surge of happiness. But I'll tell you what else does it for me, and that is uh, terrific letters from the community of happy warriors. And so uh, uh, a couple that I thought you might enjoy, uh, perhaps not quite as much as I did, but uh, perhaps a little bit. Dear Rabbi Lappin, I'm excited to write you with the hope from your podcasts that you will truly read my letter and maybe even answer it. I've received your weekly emails for about three years now and only recently began listening to your podcasts. I've listened to about 30 of them now. I love them so much. I share them with my family and I give them a podcast challenge. A comment I wanted to make in regard to one podcast is that as a woman, 
I really enjoy it when you get technical with your discussions. Please keep it up. I also enjoyed your podcast comparing the two women with eight children, mostly because I am a mother of eight beautiful children, all from the same father. What has finally tipped me to writing this letter is a podcast I listened to this morning on my walk. Recalling my life's history, forgetting our nation's history, figuring out our future. A little history. I've been a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for my entire life. My ancestors were as well for almost 200 years now. I feel like I have a very good grasp on the doctrine and principles of our faith. It is because our values align so well that I enjoy your podcast so much. In a more recent podcast, you admired the LDS faith for their devotion to family and marriage. So it was disappointing to me that when it came to the 19 or 20 minute section of this podcast, you said you knew little of our theology, but would never want to live in a village of LDS people based on their lifestyle. Can this be true? Is there something you find unsavory about the way that we live? We are a God-fearing, family-centered people, very much aligned with the principles you teach. Did I misunderstand your intent? I was confused because then you went on to discuss the many differences of values and ideas you have with the people of your own faith and ethnicity, both religiously and politically. Well, regardless, I am not thin-skinned or offended. I will continue to listen and appreciate you and your wisdom and share it with others. I teach a seminary class for the young adults, and I share your wisdom with them as well. Because I believe you are an avid learner, I invite you to spend just a few minutes of your time reading the one-page statement I attached to learn a little bit more about the LDS faith and our view on families. I believe you will find your own values within, and I think you will be pleasantly surprised. I even see your five Fs in there. I'd love to know your thoughts. Respectfully, yours, Alison. And um, I wrote back to her. I mean, look, there's no question about it. She's mistaken. I, uh, I very much admire her paragraph where she says, regardless, I'm not thin-skinned or offended. I will continue to listen and appreciate you. So that's really something, isn't it? Because she must have been offended by what she thought she heard that I said I would never live in a community of the LDS. Not true. I've often said exactly the reverse, that, that I, I would. I would go further than that, and I would say that, uh, you know, this would be a whole much of a better world if every secular fundamentalist and progressive liberal in America joined the Church of the Latter-day Saints. This would make it a far, far better country. Really would. So, uh, no question about that. But um, this happens quite often, by the way, and, and I'm sure it happens to me as well sometimes. But people think they hear me saying something, which is not what I said. And I strongly recommend that you re-listen to it again when something like that happens. And I think you will hear that you misheard. Uh, now, occasionally I do say things, and, and then I have to correct them and apologize. But... Uh, but nine times out of ten, when I get letters like this, it's people didn't hear properly. Uh, I got a, a letter like this from a woman about the show I did on low class and upper class. And she thought she heard me say that people with black skin are lower class. 
Well, I was so uh, startled by that that obviously I went back and re-listened to it, and it's not true. I never said anything even like that. My whole point was, and I repeated it several times during the show, that this has absolutely nothing to do with skin color. Class is entirely whether you are forward-looking or present-looking, whether you are looking at the past and the future or just the present. And that's pretty much what decides what class you are. And there are rich and poor people who are upper and lower class. There are people of every color who are upper and lower class. There are rich and poor people of upper and lower class. Yes, that's right. And so... um, and so I, I, you know, I, I asked her to just go back and listen. But in this case with Alison, um, it, uh, this is what I wrote to her. Um, Dear Alison, I have just checked to make sure that I'm correct. I worried that perhaps by mistake I said the wrong thing. But no, the only thing I can think of is that I wasn't clear and you misheard it. By, but I assure you that on several shows I've spoken of my fondness for LDS communities. What I say is that I don't get the theology any more than a non-Jew would get the theology of waving a palm branch on the biblical festival of tabernacles. Theology is seldom accessible to outsiders, but the ethic, the kind of lives we lead, the communities we construct, and the kinds of families we build are almost identical. So no, Alison, it wasn't my intent you misheard, but my words that you misheard. I never said, nor would I ever say anything negative about the lifestyle of the Latter-day Saints Church, which I admire as much as I admire the lifestyle of religious Jews. Please be assured. Better yet, go back and listen again so you will know. Warmest regards, and that was from me. And then she wrote back and said, Dear Abalab, thank you so much for your kind words and for your time. My heart jumped seeing that you would impart of your time to reply to little old me. But it is your answer that brings me joy. Thank you for all you are doing for me personally and for the many others you reach. May God bless you in your efforts. Best regards, Alison. Uh, Alison is not little old you at all. Happy warriors are very, very important people. They really are. They may not take themselves seriously, but we happy warriors, although we may not take ourselves seriously, we do take our lives seriously. We do take our missions seriously. We take our five Fs seriously. And so uh, I I thank you. I really appreciate that. And um, we got uh, a, uh, a letter from Maya in Holland. Maya writing from the near from the uh, the Netherlands. Dear Rabbi Daniel, it was another great podcast. Um, she's referring to the one "Should We Happy Warriors Buy Bitcoin?" I enjoyed listening to it. I would normally agree with Mrs. Lappin, but this time I will have to add a slight nuance. Your technical explanations are not only clearly explained, but serve as a metaphor to how the world really works, and that works for me. So no, this lady happy warrior will not switch off the radio. At the same time, although I do get the spiritual nature behind Bitcoin, I'd rather hold the real dough, or even better, download Susan's video and bake challah for my family, which is the best investment I've ever made. Thank you again, dear Rabbi, trillion times, because your lessons really have changed my life. That's right, she uses the correct number of R's in that word. Uh, Kind regards to Mrs. Lappin and your wonderful RDL team. And it's from Maya in the Netherlands. Thank you, Maya. Much, much, much appreciated. 
Um, okay, so uh, we should probably sort of move on. Uh, oh, you know what? I, I'm going to read you. Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you about um, uh, the scrolling through scripture program. Um, you you can hear the first of 20 lessons. You can just listen to that for free to give you an idea of what I'm doing. But uh, for anybody who wants to know a little bit more or a lot more about why the Bible has been quite as influential in the life of civilization uh, as it has, uh, anybody who would like to know why it is that this seemingly ancient and obscure volume should still be the most published book in all of human history since Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in the middle of the 15th century. If, if you'd like to get an idea of why it is that seemingly intelligent and educated people take it very seriously when so many of the stories seem childish. I mean, really, did a whale really swallow a man? Come on. And uh, did a mountain really serve as the site of God's revelation to mankind? I mean, come on, really? But if you have any interest in a deeper dive into this and to gain a little bit of insight into the, uh, well, the magic of this book, of why it exerts the influence it does, and how through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom, it reveals so much, then please go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, you'll find a tab about online courses, and you'll find one called Scrolling Through Scripture. And uh, you should take a look at it, because I can't tell you how much I'm putting into that. Uh, it really is my magnum opus, and um, I am holding nothing back. Things I would never say on the air, on the radio, things I wouldn't say on the podcast, but I do lay them out with complete clarity and lucidity right there in the 10-hour program, Scrolling Through Scripture. Believe me, you won't do it in 10 hours because you're going to need to review several of the lessons more than once. We're talking about an advanced uh, postgraduate degree in what the Bible really is all about. You will never hear this in any university program of that, I promise you. All of that in scrolling through Scripture, and uh, I do recommend it. So head over to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and get yourself the download of scrolling through Scripture. Um, here is an email, uh, a letter from Isaac. Uh, Shalom, Rabbi Lappin. Thank you for the great work you are doing standing for God's kingdom. I must say, it would be an understatement for me to say that I am blessed to have come across you. I thank God for this day because I met you via your YouTube video, Ten Commandments of Money. For the past four hours, I've been listening to your contents, including the podcast, and I suddenly realized that I have been unknowingly supporting the religion of secular fundamentalism, although I am a Christian. I suddenly realized that I've been deceived so much by a lot of media stuff, and meeting you is like walking from darkness into the light. 
Exactly a week ago, as part of my weekly goals, I set a goal to build a Bible-centered character and to dwell consciously in a Bible-centered environment for total victory during my sojourn on this earth. And what I particularly enjoy about your podcasts are your rich exposition of the Bible and world history. From this day, Rabbi, I want to learn at your feet. A bit of my background. I live in Ghana, and I am Ghanaian. I was born Itzhak in 1981 because my dad was a soldier then on peacekeeping duty in Lebanon, and he was inspired to give me the name Yitzhak. When my mother took me to school, people couldn't pronounce the Yitzhak, and my mom said it means Isaac, so they chose to spell it Isaac instead, and that is how I came to lose the name Yitzhak on my documents. I visited Israel two days before President Trump moved the capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and I really enjoyed my brief stay touring Israel and praying for Israel. In Israel, I bought two menorahs, a talus, and I learned to say the Shema. By the way, my son is called Israel Shalom. He was born in 2015. In your podcast on Stop Making the World a Better Place, you concluded nicely on how we can really make the world a better place. And I must say that I've never heard anyone put it so truthfully like you did. You stressed on taking care of our families, ourselves, loving our neighbors, etc. And you said improving our five F's. But I did not hear you explain the five F's. Could you please throw a bit more light on the five F's? Shalom, Isaac. Well, Isaac, I imagine that by now you are probably up to speed on the five F's. Your family, your finances, your friendships, your faith, and your fitness, your physical fitness. Uh, Look, do these letters give me pleasure? You bet they do. They really do, very much indeed, and uh, they mean a lot to me. I'm, 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 I'm very appreciative of them. Many of you have discovered that I answer quite a few of them, and, um, and I do that with love. Uh, last letter for today, because it has a bearing on a recent show. Uh, this one's from Jacob. Jacob writes, Dear Rabbi, I am in love with your show, and I consider myself a very happy warrior. I am also a professional energy trader, and I want to correct you on a small point that you made on your recent show. Okay, so what I was talking about on my recent show is that uh, China is way, way ahead, and that in many ways we have become, very sadly, we have become a silly nation, not a serious nation, but a silly nation. Uh, to borrow terminology from Bill Maher. And uh, the, uh, what I was talking about was the fact that uh, the president is printing a lot of money for a lot of different reasons, including setting up electrical charging stations for cars all around the country. They're going to be built by the government. Now, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, beneath each charging station, there is not a reservoir of electricity. And this charging station just drills down, pulls out electricity and puts it in your battery car. No, it doesn't work like that. You actually have to run cables to bring electricity to that charging station. And America is not building any 
power transmission cables. There's a new technology that's, that's only a few years old, and that is what's called uh, high-voltage DC transmission. It's using direct current instead of alternating current. I'm not going to go into it now. And uh, it uses high voltage. It's, it's quite brilliant. And China has tens of thousands, tens of thousands of miles of high-voltage DC transmission cable. And I said that here in America, you want to know how much we got? I'll give you a clue. It starts with Z. Um, well, I'm actually wrong, and Jacob corrects me. Uh, we don't have zero transmission lines in America. We actually have one. And I appreciate I appreciate the correction. I'll finish Jacob's letter. Um, he said, I want to correct you on a small point that you made on your recent show. And he's right. I, I, I did say this, and I'm obviously wrong. I did not know about this. Uh, Jacob continues writing. There is actually one major high-voltage DC transmission line in the United States. It's called the Nevada-Oregon Border Intertie. It is the primary means of transmitting power from the Pacific Northwest to Southern California. And he gives me a link to read up more about it. And sure enough, this is a cable that starts at the uh, Columbia River, um, right on the border of Oregon and Washington. And uh, it goes down, I think, all the way to Southern California, a good few hundred miles. It's the only one we have in the entire country. Ah! Terrible. So uh, uh, now, well, is it possible to do a show today? And uh, I'm preparing this show. I'm preparing this show in the week in which um, the Taliban took over Afghanistan. And it's, it's probably not possible for me or advisable for me not to talk about these events. However, you know how absolutely highly allergic I am to wasting my time or yours. And so for me to talk about the events in Afghanistan really makes no sense at all. Number one, you already know it all. You've seen it. You've, you've read about it. You know what's going on there. Uh, and look, it gives me no pleasure to dance on the grave of the United States of America's era of world power. But that's over. It's gone. Uh, do you think the events of this past week make China say, hmm, we'd better not take Taiwan like we took Hong Kong. We wouldn't want to annoy great President Biden. Do you think that's what China's saying right now? Or do you think China's saying, well, I think it's about time to wrap up this uh, nonsense of Taiwan pretending to be a separate country. Let's end this once and for all. And while we're at it, let's also lay claim to all of Afghanistan's lithium deposits and uh, let us also establish ourselves as part of our Belt and Road Initiative. Let's get well established in that region between India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. And uh, and to that end, by the way, um, Beijing actually invited um, the uh, the Taliban, invited representatives of the Taliban over, and um, sure enough, they had them come to Beijing, and they had a lot of talk about them. And uh, this was in April, by the way. 
So uh, don't think China hasn't been watching Afghanistan. It's very possible that they've even been uh, encouraging the Taliban. This I don't know. But Taliban reps did come and have a big meeting with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. And that's this past April. That you probably don't know about. Um, but at any at any rate, um, China has created what it calls the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And uh, this is a, a component project of uh, President Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. I've told you about that. Uh, along with very serious Chinese mining interests inside Afghanistan. Um, this, by the way, was not the Taliban's first visit to China. This is what I'm talking about in April. Uh, but the seniority of the Chinese representatives at the meeting is unprecedented. That we've not done, we've not seen that before. Um, also, a very public message came out of the meeting that Beijing recognizes the Taliban as a legitimate political force. And um, uh, by the way, when they posed for photographs, the Chinese officials posed for photographs with the Taliban and uh, front and center was Deputy Taliban leader Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar, um, foreign um, uh, Foreign Secretary uh, Wang described the Taliban as a crucial military and political force in Afghanistan that is expected to play an important role in the peace, reconciliation, and reconstruction process of that country. This was in April. Now, back 20 years ago, right after the 9-11 attacks, the Prime Minister of Great Britain at that point was Tony Blair. And um, I think it was in October uh, of, of 2001, just after the attacks, they had the Labour Party conference, like a big, big conference for Britain's Labour Party, of which Tony Blair was the head. And um, he spoke to the conference, and this is what he said. He said the wars that he was going to join George Bush, George W. Bush, in fighting were about building a new world order. Those were his exact words, by the way. I'm, I'm quoting. The kaleidoscope has been shaken. The pieces are in flux. Soon they will settle again, he said. Before they do, let us reorder this world around us. As, as Britain and America retreat, defeat, this is now not him talking, uh, but Britain and America are both re in retreat at this point. Let's admit it. Defeated. It's now going to be up to others to reorder the world. And don't for one moment think that China is going to pass up that opportunity. So, yes, I do need to mention this uh, huge fiasco of, um, of uh, Afghanistan, which quite possibly is doing as much or even more damage to America than the departure from Saigon in April 1975. Um, it's, it's possibly even more of a fiasco for the United States. Now, I obviously have to speak about it, but as I said, I'm the last thing I'm going to do is waste your time telling you things you've already read, things you've heard, things you've watched and seen. I'm not going to do that. But what I did think we could do was take a look at the 10 lessons 
that the Afghanistan um, fiasco can teach us for the purposes of our lives, of our families, and of our businesses. Okay, should we try that? Okay, uh, here comes lesson number one. Uh, I should do a drum roll, right, don't you think? So, um, in readiness now for lesson number one from Afghanistan, okay? Uh, but wait a moment, you know, now that I think of it, isn't that a bit ordinary? Really? I mean, when you come to think of it, like everybody does a drum roll, right? So, I mean, do I really want to be that mundane? Uh, I mean, you know, like anytime people have a top 10, they always do a drum roll. So I'm not going to do a drum roll. Um, I think we'll do a cow moo, okay? Um, th that's much better. That's more like it. So move for the very first of the lessons that we can learn from uh, the Afghani collapse. Number one, clearly define your objectives. The end victory has to be stated what it is. Um, by the way, years and years and years ago at the time, uh, smart people who understood stated and proclaimed that America's war on poverty was just downright silly, not serious, silly. You know why? Because there was no definition of what victory would look like. And so there was absolutely no way to win that so-called war on poverty. It, it was a political piece of nonsensical theater. It meant nothing then. It means nothing now. War on drugs. Same, exactly the same thing. You know, completely ridiculous. What exactly is victory on the war of drugs? What do you mean by that? So stop using that terminology. Well, the problem is that uh, although uh, President Biden and his entire administration of bumbling nincompoops, um, utterly incompetent clowns, they certainly uh, bear considerable blame for the uh, Afghani fiasco, uh, but one also has to acknowledge the role of George W. Bush in starting it. You know, he he went in to get uh, Al Qaeda and um, and Bin Laden, um, messed up. Bin Laden and most of the Al Qaeda leadership escaped from their state-sponsored area, the Taliban in Afghanistan, and they went into the Tora Bora Mountains, where we promptly lost track of them, and perhaps after that into Pakistan, and we didn't want to go into Pakistan for political reasons. But, but why stay in Afghanistan? Well, because he was horribly, badly uh, advised by some some people who called themselves the neocons, the new conservatives, um, to build up Afghanistan. You see, if we could make Afghanistan resemble New Hampshire, just a nice democratically run quiet country in the Middle East or the Far East, that's all we have to do, then we wouldn't have to worry about them launching any more terror attacks on us. How about we make sure they don't launch any more terror attacks on us by turning their country into a parking lot and then telling them that if they harbor the Al-Qaeda again, we'll come back and turn the parking lot into a crater. How about doing that? 
So if you don't know what an army is meant for, but that's another, that's another story. Bottom line is they started that war. And I blame George W. Bush on this. He started the, the war on terror, but he never ever told us what victory would look like. At what point could it really mean something? It certainly was laughable when you'll remember he was photographed on the aircraft carrier with a big sign, mission accomplished. Oh, really? So how come people are still there? How silly can you be? If you haven't defined the, uh, the battle, and what victory would look like, you can never say mission accomplished. And Donald Rumsfeld, the late Donald Rumsfeld, who I liked um, and who, who I actually knew, um, was on that same day in Afghanistan declaring also victory. But if you never told us what victory is defined as, anybody can say victory and anybody can say rubbish. It's not victory because you've never defined it. So this is also very useful when uh, you set projects at work uh, or even with your family define very clearly what the objectives are right up front that's what you absolutely have to do and it makes all the difference in the world it's not we're going to uh, build our our shed or we're going to do our garden uh, or we're going to build a a new uh, marketing arm in our company fine but when this has been accomplished, what will it look like exactly? You've got to say that so that the finish line is clearly marked. Otherwise, you're setting people off on a long, arduous, grueling road race <laughs> with no finish line. The finish line is wherever you decide to put it. So obviously it has no credibility. So we do not want to do that, okay? We don't want to do that. All right, let's go to number two of the lessons from Afghanistan, from the debacle of this week in Afghanistan, the absolute debacle. What are the lessons you can apply to your life, to uh, your business, and to your family? Are you ready for number two? <laughs> I, I like that cow. I really do. That's right. Well, you could say that was number two and number three, but no, I just repeated. Number two is... Money flung at a problem without a plan is wasted money. You want to throw money at a problem before you've even figured out exactly what has to be done? It's a huge waste. Uh, the United States has wasted $2 trillion. Now, that number is so big, $2 trillion in Afghanistan. That number is so big that we can't even relate to it. But let's put it very simply a whole lot of taxes that you paid over the last 20 years needn't have been taken from you. A whole lot of taxation. I haven't worked out the details, but it's enough to be significant because you know there are not 300 million taxpayers in the United States of America, even though there are that many people. The number of taxpayers is much, much, much smaller. And divide them into 2 trillion and you'll see that we could all have paid a whole lot less. I wonder if you've seen, as I have, the sickening pictures of the huge mansions and palaces that all the Afghani military generals, the same generals, by the way, who collapsed to the Taliban this week more quickly than the French collapsed to the Germans in 1939. Uh, these same generals, have you seen the pictures of the palaces and the mansions they lived in? Do you know 
and I know that uh, the White House is going to deny this, but I don't trust a single thing they said. Uh, I frankly don't trust anything they've said um, since uh, January of this year. And uh, the, uh, the White House is going to say that it's not true, but I trust the Russian news service much more than the White House. The Russian news service, as well as many other news services, confirm that Ashraf Ghani, President Ashraf Ghani, uh, left the country with $169 million. And a whole lot more of it was left lying on the runway when he fled because he couldn't get it into his helicopter. May I ask you, where do you think Ashraf Ghani got hold of $169 million? He used to be a goat herder a few years ago. These Afghan generals, these masters of military expertise, these paragons of martial courage and indomitability. Tell me, where do you think they got the money to build these palaces and mansions? From the booming Afghani economy? From their vast investments in the Kandahar Stock Exchange? Is that what you think? You understand that this is money that our government transferred away from carpenters in Colorado and farmers in Florida and from plumbers in Pennsylvania and all the rest of us taxpayers, this money was taken from us and simply flung around Afghanistan so casually and so corruptly that these goat herders managed to amass millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, right. So learn from this. If you have a problem, don't let your first instinct be to, to throw money at it. Now, the great thing about having money is that many, many, many problems turn from worrying problems into nothing more than expenses. How wonderful to be able to eliminate problems by simply paying for them. But that's making sure that the money is being spent effectively and judiciously and it's actually going to do the job. That's what makes the big difference. So if you have someone in your company who has check writing privileges and with as you grow a company, you can't avoid that, right? Because you give a budget to a department and you assume that it's all going to be spent. It's not, it doesn't happen that often, only with very good people, very good managers, will they come to you and say, you know what? You gave us too much for this budget. We didn't need as much. The general rule, certainly in government and, and also in not good companies, is no matter what you have to do, you spend every penny in your budget so you can get more next time, next year. And if you've got people uh, with uh, budget control over sections in your company, just make sure they are people of good character because that's what really counts. Having an MBA tells you nothing about what really matters. Having a degree in finance and accounting tells you nothing about what really matters. Those may be very useful, but what really matters is that the person who can spend your money has character. Because only people of character will look after your money as diligently and as frugally as they look after their own. And one of the great nice things about being in politics is that you get to spend oodles of other people's money. And you have very little sense of responsibility or frugality transforming goat herders into multimillionaires in Afghanistan. Thank you. 
Thank you, Washington. We appreciate it. How awful is that? Okay, uh, how about we go to number three? Here comes number three. Choose allies of good character. That's really important. Choose allies of good character. Um, America certainly didn't do that. You know, whether, whether it was Ashraf Ghani or Karzai or some of the other people that have been given power in the, in the East, America has chosen horrible people. You want to know why they choose these horrible people? I suspect because there are forces in American politics that prefer corrupt people because they can be more easily controlled. That's what I suspect. I'm sorry. I wish I, wish I could think better. But uh, the events of the last little while in Afghanistan, even the most dewy-eyed and optimistic observer of America has to say, time to go look for other friends. Because right now, people know that being an ally of America doesn't really do much good. We've chosen allies badly, and now we are stuck. And um, it's awful. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a great portion. I, I strongly recommend you take a look at this, by the way. Uh, whether or not you are as Bible-centric as I am makes no difference. But uh, take a look at Genesis chapter 21, verse 24. And in there, there is this Philistine guy. By the way, Philistine, if you look at the letters, same word as Palestine or Palestinian. Uh, it's, uh, there's no difference, right? Avimelech is the king of the Philistines. And he's, you know, he's beginning to realize just how powerful Abraham is. And he says to Abraham, you must swear to me, you got to swear to me that you and your descendants will treat me well and I don't have to worry. Abraham gives him that assurance. Have you ever wondered, or if you haven't looked at it before, look at it now, and wondered to yourself, why on earth didn't Abraham say, okay, hey, Abimelech, this is bilateral, you know, deals work both ways. If I swear to you that I will only treat you well, I expect you to swear to me that you'll do the same thing. Why didn't Abraham do that? Because he knew that a promise from Abimelech was as useful as a promise from an Afghani warlord. It was, there was no point in it. Why ask him for a promise? What a waste of oxygen. Choose your allies to be people of good character. If you have family friends, people you invite to your home, people you bring to your dinner table to enhance your family, choose them to be people of good character. Uh, people you build strategic alliances with in your business. Technical competence is one thing, and you have to have that. But try and choose people of good character as well, right? There's real value in doing that. Okay. That's right. That brings us to principle or teaching lesson number four from the Afghani collapse and the way America has handled Afghanistan over the last uh, 20 years. Offering blackmail is a losing strategy. Do you know that President Biden said to the Taliban a few weeks ago, um, we will send you guys money if you allow free passage 
to all the people we want to get out of Afghanistan. We'll pay you. That's called offering blackmail. Now, what does any thug worth his salt do when somebody offers him money? Not to, you know, not to beat him up or not to do something. Well, you do what you want to do anyway, and you take the money. <laughs> I mean, and that's exactly what's happened. Uh, the uh, Taliban are, uh, they are now in possession of a huge amount of American military material. Airplanes, helicopters, uh, weaponry, trucks, uh, drones, a lot of high-tech drone equipment, all in the hands of the Taliban. Like, what was this White House thinking? Oh yeah, I forgot. They're clowns. They're bumbling clowns. And um, so please remember that offering blackmail is a losing strategy. Don't let me ever, ever hear you say to your four-year-old or five-year-old child, mommy um, will give you a candy if you go to bed now. It's after all 11 o'clock at night. We've been trying to get you to bed since 6 p.m. How about if we give you a candy? You'll go to bed. How about we'll put a candy on your bedside table so you'll see it in the morning? How about... Okay, don't let me see you do that with your children, please, because you are creating a person. You are creating a human being. It will be very, very unpleasant to live with. Now, it's bad enough that it'll be unpleasant for you to live with, but the trouble is that eventually that child's going to go out into the world and be an extremely unpleasant person as well. Um, if uh, And in business as well, and his work as well, don't try and buy people's loyalty or buy their performance by blackmail. If somebody is worthy of a raise, give him a raise, but don't offer a raise to somebody not worthy of it because you need them to do something. Okay, so offering blackmail is one of the lessons from the Afghani collapse that is something you should really make sure you do not ever do. Okay. Did you hear? You sure you heard that? Right, that's number five. You can tell I like cows. I really do like cows. You think about it. What an extraordinary animal that it just sort of, it's, it, it hangs out there with a the farmer and just keeps on delivering milk. It's incredible. It's really... It's, it's a lovely animal. It really is a lovely animal. I, I, I told you I spent a fair amount of time as a boy on my mother's family farm in the Northern Cape. And, uh, and I did. And that's one of the places, by the way, because uh, when I was on the farm, I had the job of bringing one of the herds of cows from the pasture into the milking stable and then back to the pasture. And I had to do that twice a day, once in the morning, once in the late part of the day. And uh, I really learned a lot about cow manure, by the way. I learned a whole lot about cow manure. And I think it stood me in good stead because to this day, as I think many of you will agree, I possess a very finely tuned cow manure detector. So um, I, uh, lesson number five from this terrible um, chaos that America has produced in Afghanistan. Use your resources the right way, all right? Um, if you happen to possess a really lovely car, and it's a new car, maybe it's your spouse's car, and you need to carry two sheets of plywood and three 50-pound three bags of um, 
fertilizer or cement back from the hardware store, don't use your nice sedan for that. Borrow somebody's truck. Use the right tool for the right job, please. And, and this is true in your business. You have resources. Make sure you use the right resource for the job. It is demoralizing to resources to be misused. In other words, what I mean by that is, you know, I think it'd be a, it's okay when Elon Musk uh, was in a tremendous rush. He had to get out a certain number of Teslas, and he got everybody for a few days, accountants, bookkeepers, uh, everybody in the factory in Fremont, California, had to go and do help out on the factory floor. And I think that's fine. You know, in times of emergency, everyone understands that. But uh, when it isn't like that, um, to ask people to do things that are, are not the things that they're trained for, things that are not what they are in the position for, it's, it's demoralizing. And uh, it's like that in a family as well, as well as in a business. So you definitely want to remember, because what America did is they forgot, this country forgot that the military's purpose is for destroying things and blowing things up and killing people. That's the purpose of a military. Sorry about that. You know, I wish the purpose of a military was nothing more than bringing flowers to the population. But, um, you know, the world is not yet perfect. And please, please don't spend any of your energy on trying to make the world a better place. But, um, yeah, I covered that. You're right. But uh, we should have remembered the military's purpose was not to democratize Afghanistan. The military's purpose was not to turn Iraq into Kansas. The purpose of the military is not to build schools for little Afghani girls. These are all very nice things, but it's not the military's job. And it added to the demoralization and corruption of the military. It was only a short jump from there for the military to start spending far more time on problems of white supremacy and problems of diversity and um, uh, inclusion and, um, and these matters. Um, much more important. Sure, I get it. And the military should have been used to turn Afghanistan into a parking lot. And the Afghani people should have been told, next time you let in bad guys to your country and give them a home, and a launching pad from which they can attack our country, will come back. And this time we won't turn it into a parking lot again. We'll turn it into a big hole in the ground. That's what you use a military for. Do I sound, do I sound lacking in compassion? If I do, I can only say that I take my job very seriously. And my job is to tell you the truth, not to have you think, oh, what a nice guy he is. I mean, I'd like to be thought of well. I really would. Uh, and I, I enjoy letters that seem to suggest I'm serving you well, but I can't distort the truth. The truth is that George W. Bush made a terrible blunder, and we're paying the price for it these last 20 years in both blood and treasure, and it's, it, and it's pretty horrible. The military is to do, its purpose is to do one thing. It's not to make women feel good it's not to lower standards so women can do everything that's asked. It's not to uh, eliminate white supremacy. It's not to do any of those things. The purpose of the military is to blow up our enemies and to kill them. That's what it's meant to do.
Sorry. Misusing them these last 20 years has been a debacle, a disaster, a calamity, a catastrophe. Okay, next one. That is better than a drum roll, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Number six, don't allow cosmetics to be more important than competence. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that many of the people that President Biden brought into his administration were brought in because of their gender, of their sex, and because of their race, not because of their competence. I'm sorry. Uh, look, I've watched some of the statements on television by uh, Secretary of Defense. Uh, I've looked at it. I've looked at the, the way some of the generals have spoken. Incompetent, bumbling buffoons. There is, there is no better way to describe it. So don't be misled by cosmetics. Depend on competence, please. Diversity, equity, inclusion. These songs are so well known already that they have their own initials. Did you know that? DEI. Companies are focused on DEI. I've seen memos that the military parts of that we're focused on DEI. We're bringing diversity and equity and inclusion. Yeah, really? No, you're supposed to be focused on blowing up things and killing our enemies. That's what you're supposed to be doing. They don't do it. So just remember that in your family, cosmetics are not more important than competence. Meaning, don't let your children pretend that they're achieving and doing things you want them and need them to do, whether it's educationally or gaining skills. No, how you look isn't nearly as important as your competence. And um, in your business, the same thing is obviously true. Competence really matters much more than cosmetics do. So don't worry about the optics, right? Politicians very often focus on the optics. What does this look like on the evening news? Don't you fall into that trap. You stick with things that can be measured and things that are real. Because what we focus on on this show is how the world really works. <laughs> no, not exactly. How the world really works. That's right. And the world really works on competence, not on cosmetics. So uh, are you ready for number seven? Should we do another cow move for number seven? Of course, what a question. So number seven is that family and tribe means much more to most people than government do, does. And uh, this is, again, something that uh, America did not realize. They thought, and this is, again, the mindset of secular fundamentalist bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., They've never in their lives ever met anybody whose most important thing in life is his relationship with his God. And um, for most people, okay, now for Afghanis, it's obviously been true, but America comes along and sets up this silly fake government, the Afghani democratic government that is going to bring rights to women. How many Afghanis do you think that strategy appealed to? It certainly appealed to some of the women who have used it to rise to prominence and power in Afghanistan. 
But do you really think that that really appealed to all the goat herders around the country? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And so uh, family and tribe means more to most people than government and power does. And so they were very much focused. And so as soon as even the people who'd been set up and paid off by America to be part of the new Afghani military, America didn't even realize that their links to their own tribes people and their links to their own family were much more important than their links to America. And when the payments stopped, they gave up and went home. <laughs> they probably even told the Taliban, hey, guys, come on in. It's free. Because American bureaucrats cannot understand that to most of us, family and tribe are more important than government. Part of a progressive government's mission is to change that and to make people care more, much more, to indeed try to make people care more about government than they care about their own families and about their own tribe, their own groups, their own neighborhoods, their own communities. Um, the entire focus of a progressive government such as exists currently in Washington, D.C., um, is to replace a society where people connect to each other with a society where people connect like radii of a circle to the hub at the middle, which is the federal government. Even state powers have been eroded over the last 20 years in order to make sure that more and more and more citizens are tied to the federal government directly. And, um, and we've got to remember, when we deal with our families and when we deal with our businesses, that our families and our tribal connections are more important and more significant to us than is government. And the same thing is true. You've got to remember in your business, people are loyal to their employers. They are, understandably and rightly, to a degree. But if you ever expect an employee to go against his family in the uh, interest of his employer, you're asking something unreasonable. It's not something that people really want to do, and uh, most times they won't do it. Let's go to the next one, shall we? Here comes number eight. Number eight is that you should think and plan for the long term. Um, the Taliban commander who gave the victory speech, you've seen him on your screens uh, for days already, the, the guy with a big turban, golden clothing, that guy uh, was captured and put in the Gitmo detention camp in Cuba very soon after 9-11. He's a bad guy, a really, really problematic guy. And um, they let him go years and years and years and years ago. They let him go because, and now to quote the uh, American officials at the time, um, he's really just a shopkeeper, and he wants to go home to Afghanistan to help his father run the family appliance store. Right. He's now commander-in-chief of the Taliban forces. Yeah, a shopkeeper. How dumb can anybody be? Yeah, that's how dumb we Americans were uh, with that crowd. So um, think long term. You know, ask yourself, is what I'm doing good for the long term. Because as I said earlier near the start of the show, the difference between high class and low class 
is how focused we are on long-term over short-term. Are we aware of what the long-term implications are of what we're doing? Yes, I know it would be fun to do this thing you want to do right now, but is it really what's in your long-term interests? Um, you know, the president told us how, you know, the Taliban are okay. We're working out deals with them where everything's going to be fine. And um, he's, he assures us, right, the Taliban say they'll take care of women's rights and there won't be any retribution. Well, um, they have just viciously and publicly, uh, brutally executed the uh, police chief in um, uh, Badges province. His name is General Haji Mullah Ashkazai. And they just um, made him kneel in the public square in front of lots and lots of people. And they read out his offense and um, gunned him down. His offense was that he at one time had helped Americans fight the insurgents. So, so much for that. If you can't think long term, then you have no place in leadership. Not for your business, not for your family, and certainly not for your country. And um, we now go to number nine. Number nine is people of strong belief, even in belief in the wrong thing, will always beat those people with no beliefs at all. Right. Um, it really does matter how you are, how you are motivated. It really matters to realize what it is that drives people. And so, once again, uh, soulless bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. have no idea of the passions that drive the parties in the Middle East. They don't get Israel. They don't understand Jordan or Syria. They don't understand Lebanon or Egypt. And they certainly don't get Afghanistan. Uh, there are people with strong belief. Do you know that in 1900, for two years, Britain fought the Boers in South Africa? And um, this was because, mainly because gold had been discovered 20 years earlier in the area that was controlled by the Boers, and uh, Britain wanted the gold. I mean, as simple as that. It was not right, but they brought nearly 500,000 men from England. Every one of those men had to be shipped on a ship. He had to have transport in the way of thousands of ox wagons, because that's what was used in Africa in 1900. And uh, basically, Britain assembled the largest army that had been seen on the face of the earth. And it took him two years to beat a ragtag band of no more than about 45,000 South African soldiers. A lot of people don't know about this because, you know, soon the events were overtaken by the drama of World War I in 1914. But from 1900 to 1902, the British struggled with the biggest army in the world to beat 50,000 Afrikaners. Right? These were incredible fighters. You know why? Because they were all Bible-driven. They were all deeply religious men who believed that they had a God-given right to the land that they had chosen 
in the high felt of Southern Africa. By the way, in this sense, no different at all from the pilgrims who came to uh, uh, to um, New England in the early 1600, 1620. Um, no different from them. No different from the pioneers who settled the Ohio Valley um, in the uh, early 1700s. These all were all people who were deeply religious Christians, just like the South African Boers at the beginning of the 20th century. And they were able to do extraordinarily well against horrendous odds. Um, in both cases, the British, <laughs> as it would happen. Um, and Americans beat the British. And the bottom line was that they had a belief system. The British didn't really know what they were there for, other than for the glory of God and country. But like, what were they doing in North America? And they didn't really know. But the pilgrims and the settlers, they knew. And so it was also, uh, it took nearly a half a million British soldiers to subdue 45,000 un poorly armed South African soldiers because it was all about belief. You, you've, you've got to know. So when you build a family culture, belief is a really important part of that. I don't have to tell you more. And when you build a business culture, there is a way of incorporating belief there too, so that people are working in a way that is real and they are motivated by something deep and, um, and eternal makes a huge difference. And that ends number nine. So all we have left is number 10. Okay, so uh, get ready now, okay? Because this is the last time that you're going to hear Clarabelle the cow on this show. So uh, let's go, shall we, for number 10, the final lesson that you can learn for your life, for your family, and for your business from the appalling Afghani collapse and America's dreadful failures in letting that happen. Here comes number 10. Number 10 is do not fall prey to the sunken costs fallacy. The sunken costs fallacy says we're in so deep already, we may just keep going, may as well just keep going. And um, it's a fallacy. It's not true. There is such a thing as cutting your losses and getting out. Well, I'm not going to uh, discuss when America could have got out of Afghanistan. Uh, everybody can figure that out for themselves. But I will remind you that in your own life, in your business and financial affairs, in your family affairs, even in your friendship affairs, there are some times where you have to say, you know what, it's enough. I know I've, in leaving, I'm throwing stuff away, but it's better than throwing good money after bad. I'm bailing out. I'm, I'm done. And uh, it's important to be able to do that. Uh, sometimes you say to yourself, how can I? I've been friends with this person for 20 years, 30 years, 40. Oh, we've been friends since we were in grade school. Uh, you know, I just I can't just end the friendship now. Sometimes things happen that make ending a friendship the very best thing you can possibly do. It's sad when it happens, but just because you've got years and years invested in it doesn't mean you should continue to throw more years into it. The same is true for certain investments. Sometimes it's true for a job. 
you know, a job's just no good. I'll tell you, here's another example for women. Uh, going out with the guys, dating you for one year and two years and four years and six years. In I just spoke recently to a girl whose friend has been seeing somebody for seven years. She's still waiting for him to commit to marriage. Right? There comes a time, and you. by the way, I've had this. It's very hard to explain this to her. I can't walk out now. Do you know what? I've got invested in this relationship. I have to start again. I start dating again. I understand the horrible feeling. It's a terrible predicament for a woman to be in. But that's why you shouldn't have dated him for so long in the first place. Because one year quickly becomes two years. And after two years, it just keeps going. But uh, you should be looking at the dating value in months, not years. And so it is. The sunken cost. I've got so much sunk in that already. No, it doesn't matter. It is still necessary sometimes to walk away. And that, my friends, is as far as we go for today's Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. The 10 lessons that the Afghani debacle teaches us in terms of our own lives and in terms of our families and our businesses, our finances. So I want to wish you a wonderful week ahead, a week of great productivity in the relationships you have with your family with your friends, with your finances, with your physical fitness, and don't overlook your faith. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks for listening. God bless.